0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast.
1: community focused folks. It doesn't really matter what letters after your name. We need folks in rural communities who can bring these ideas to the table. It doesn't have to be about demonizing each other. If someone's got a good idea, go with the good idea. And I think there's gonna be enough people who want relevance in politics. They're tired of the BS. And I think when that movement starts to grow, it really will help to shift some of the local races and then the folks who kind of move up through the political food chain.
0: All right, everyone, on today's episode, we have a special guest, Jamie McLeod Skinner, who many of you probably first heard of when she ran for Congress against Congressman Greg Walden and came closer to beating him than any Democrat had in his entire career. And then she also ran a competitive statewide race in the Democratic primary to be Oregon's Secretary of State. She's got an extensive background in public service. She actually served on a city council in California before moving up to Oregon, And she currently serves on the Education Service District Board of Jefferson County. She's got three degrees, one in civil engineering, one in regional planning, and then a law degree from the U of O. She's kind of perceived in Oregon as the rural Democrat with the highest profile. And that's what we spent a lot of time talking about in today's episode. Alex, what was your your main takeaway from the interview with Jamie McLeod Skinner?
2: Well, yeah. And and Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, her profile blew up pretty quickly, just right after she ran against Representative Greg Walton. She wasn't really famous or well-known or that big in Portland circles before that race.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And she basically attracted a ton of grassroots support. So this wasn't like the big institutions came and, you know, selected her as the candidate. It was, she raised a ton of small dollar donors. She had a lot of volunteers and she talked about bridging the urban rural divide. That was kind of her appeal to voters was I'm a Democrat with progressive values, but who can speak the language of rural folks and really understand their values. And that's kind of how she gained a platform.
2: Yeah. And she puts forward a a lot of those different issues throughout the episode in terms of, I just even think the issues that she's speaking about are not generally things that you hear from the folks in Portland or from from the I-5 corridor. So I thought that that was really interesting. I know that Folks generally say too, you like politicians of who you'd want to have a beer with. And I could totally see myself having a beer with Jamie. She's definitely an enjoyable person to talk to. And I think that she's really smart. My biggest takeaway is I think that the things that will continue to hold her back as well, her issues on economics, maybe a little bit more center right or even centrist rather than left wing, I think that her Stance on the social issues is just going to continuously hold her back in terms of those rural areas or other Democrats that try to run in those rural areas. As Ben had to have his little clash in some other episodes, Jamie and I had a very brief clash on abortion, which you can look forward to towards the end of the episode. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's good that Jamie is participating in this endeavor. One, it's good for the Democratic Party, it's causing more rural folks to hopefully be represented amongst them, too. And then two, I think it's going to hold rural Republicans more accountable, too. If you have real candidates running in these seats, instead of just people who are putting their name on the ballot, they're raising money, they're putting forward ideas, I think that's going to make the rural GOP a much better entity as well. So I think I totally applaud her goal in terms of having more progressive representation in rural areas. While I disagree with many of her policies. I think what she's pursuing is a good idea, especially for the Democrats.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And What I appreciated about her was her, her honesty in um, critiquing her own party and some of the institutions in the Democratic Party or on the left and the roles that they play. I mean, I do believe that what she said is absolutely true about the barriers to entry in sort of progressive establishment Mm -hmm. folks outside the I-5 corridor. I think that's very real. And I think it potentially could be a challenge for the party moving forward, depending on if your side of the aisle can get itself together in Oregon and be a little bit more competitive. But yeah, so Titus, I hear that we have our first ever listener question
2: that came in. Well, even before we get into that, Ben, how do you think the podcast is going so far? This is our First intro recorded, actually, since we've had our initial release. So how do you think things are going so far?
0: I think it's going really well. I'm getting a lot of of the students who I've worked with on campaigns are reaching out and saying that they love it, they're obsessed with it. I'm impressed by the quality of guests that we've been able to get. And I think that says less about us and more about Oregon and how accessible everyone is here and how it's easy to talk to people who are important and making really important decisions and have had a big impact on the state. So we've got some really cool episodes coming up. In fact, today we just recorded an episode with Senator Dallas Hurd, who you can look forward to in a couple of weeks, chair of the Oregon Republican Party, a very conservative member of the Oregon State Senate. And it was a wild, wild interview. So yeah, I think it's going really well and I'm excited about
2: what we're doing. What do you think? How are you feeling? You know, not everyone necessarily agrees. Our first episode with Representative Campos, she was given a 10 out of 10 by my wife, but we were only given a six out of 10. (laughs) Uh, That's fair. So we're fair. You know, maybe our first episode, Ben, we we didn't do the greatest. So that was, I mean, even my own wife's giving a six out of 10. I can't imagine what the general public is thinking.
0: I mean, I will say, like, (laughs) I I, I do feel like we are getting better or like, I feel like I'm having a better understanding of the role of a podcast host. Like when we have a conservative person on, I disagree with a lot of what they say, but it's not a good show if every five minutes I'm like saying, oh, well, what about this? Or, you know, well, according to the other side, this, like, like, why are you so crazy? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like getting better at giving folks space to kind of say their piece and trying to pick my spots in terms of when to bring the sort of alternate perspective. And I think you've done a good job with that, for example, with Jamie. I think you'll see that Jamie has space to share her views and then the occasional pushback or challenge from you from the right perspective.
2: Yeah, and then, Ben, as you were saying before, we did get our first ever listener question, which, of course, I have to ask. And it's a gentleman based out of Roseburg, Oregon. And his question was essentially... Ben and Alex, how are you able to do this podcast? Because as anyone knows who's listening to this, I'm a really conservative guy. I'm socially conservative as well. I worked in the Trump administration. I've worked for all the plethora of the bad conservative donors, all of that good stuff, all the conservative grassroots groups in DC. Ben, you're obviously a progressive, you're LGBTQ, you ran a progressive insurgent campaign against a moderate Democrat. And their basic question was just, how are you guys able to do this really in a respectful manner? Because at least from They don't think you could see something like this on Fox News or on CNN or MSNBC, right? I mean, generally, when you see these news segments, it's so that people can dunk on each other. You bring on the other side, you tell them that they're crazy, they shouldn't have anything to say. And then, you know, basically, it's just kind of a fight fest for three minutes before it goes to commercial break. So, Ben, why do you think we've been able to have these conversations and keep them respectful, but I think also insightful, while still maintaining, you know, our ideological consistency in the terms of I'm obviously a conservative, you're obviously a progressive? I think it works because you just let me keep dunking on you over and over and over and you're comfortable with it.
0: No, Actually though, this is going to have to change. (laughs) I do think it works because we've known each other for so long and like we can make fun of each other in private and call each other out when we both have a similar lens in terms of being really annoyed with politicians who talk like politicians, like people who sound like robots or who sound like they're giving, you know, ridden lines in interviews. And so I think we have that same view of how like these interviews should go and how people should be honest and direct and and say what they think and we've got a relationship where like you can call me out after an interview and be like are you kidding me dude you have to be able to blah 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 and so I think the level the relationship we had before the podcast is what makes it possible I don't if we were just meeting each other and I was the progressive guy and you were the conservative guy and we tried to start a show I think I think it'd be really hard because you have to have you have to trust each other. And I think we've developed a level of trust that even though we disagree on most policy, we know we're not trying to hurt each other or play gotcha with each other, or make each other look bad on the podcast. So that's why I think.
2: Yeah. And I also think the thing is, is that even if someone disagrees with everything that Senator Heard says, or they disagree with everything that Jamie McLeod Skinner says, it's still good just to understand where the other side is coming from. Because It doesn't matter if you hate all of their ideas and think that they're terrible. There's a large portion of the population that agrees with either everything they have to say or most things. I mean, I think that folks should really, and I'm not even trying to say this in terms of the preachy bipartisanship or whatever, but I mean- there's a large chunk of America that just has different viewpoints. One that look a lot like mine, and uh, you know, look a lot like yours. And that's what I think people should just be able to have these conversations because I think you actually can find a little bit more common ground when you have this. But you can also just treat people as people and not think that they're trying to destroy you all the time, which I think is something that our politics is really embodying through the sort of dunk on Twitter crowd, where someone will tweet like this guy's a lib, and it will get you know, a hundred thousand likes, and they're like this crazy conservative, and it'll get like a million retweets or something from AOC, like. That's just not good for America. I don't think it helps anybody and it puts, you know, sort of both parties and both ideological spectrums in a bad place. So yeah, I think conversations like this where you actually have to talk with people and you can't. Just sort of make dumb dunks like that that you know if someone made that on the podcast we would shut them down Cause so we just think that's ridiculous like that's not serious whereas with some of those other mediums or those two-minute tv or two-minute radio interviews like people are incentivized to do that sort of thing so that's what i think has made us successful and you know it's just it's useful to listen what you have to say and what other folks have to say no matter where they come from on the political spectrum because they are influencing these decisions these ideological Bounds of each party. And it's just, it's frankly just interesting too. So yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, before we get to the episode, we got to give a shout out to Buddy Terry. He's the producer of our podcast and he's amazing to work with. His website's buddyterry.com. Check it out. If you need someone to do documentary style filmmaking advertisements on YouTube or social media, he is a pro of all pros and incredibly easy to work with he's been huge for us on the creative side of the podcast in terms of making it flow and making it sound good. So can't thank him enough, buddy. We appreciate you and strongly encourage folks listening. If you need someone in the audio visual realm for your work, reach out to
2: buddy. He's an awesome guy. And we will be doing a special episode with buddy at some point, which I think we're going to have to drag him into, but he's being forced to do it. There's no saying no to this, but a special episode on how you go about making a podcast because yeah, Buddy set us up with all the different websites that we use. He set us up, helped us get the mics with the camera angles, with the editing for the videos, editing for the audio, the equipment you need to do, something like that. So we've gotten some interest from that. So that's definitely something that we're planning to release at some point, too.
0: And I believe Buddy got a 10 out of 10 from Daniela as well. So
2: he did. Yeah, Buddy got a 10 out of 10, and we only got a 6 out of 10. So <laughs> we know who's pulling their weight and who isn't. All right, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. Please remember to give us a five-star
0: rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. And how do you even send in a listener question?
2: Someone found my personal website. That's nice. So, yeah, you can either find my personal website, which I think is alexwtitus.com. Also, you could message us directly from our Twitter page, which is at Oregon Bridge Pod. So, yeah, there's a, a couple different ways to do it. You can also just leave a comment on one of the podcast mediums, too. Where we take a look at the comments and read that stuff. So, but yeah, you just went out and found my personal website. So,
0: I appreciate the initiative.
2: All right, everyone, enjoy the
0: episode. All right, Jamie McLeod Skinner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Looking
1: forward to the conversation.
0: So before we jump in, I, it looks like you are sitting in your trailer. Is that the same trailer that we became the the stuff of legend from traveling around the second congressional district in the state in your Secretary of State's race?
1: It is. I'm down in talent right now serving as the interim city manager and really it's housing, housing, housing. And so that's a real focus. And so I've got this down here as my kind of short office for non-city related issues. And then also to take a quick snooze when I'm tired.
0: (laughs) I love it. So, so you are not back home in Jefferson County. You're actually in talent right now.
1: That's correct. So from January to June, I'll be in talent. I get home probably every two to three weeks just for about 24 hours to see my wife and son.
0: Wow. So your wife and son are staying in Jefferson County and you're kind of doing the remote working to rebuild talent.
1: That's correct. We live, my family's about an hour north of Bend. It's just in the outskirts of Terrebonne. And we usually refer to Terrebonne because folks driving 97 will go through Terrebonne. Even if they blink, they'll miss it. But they technically, (laughs) we're actually out at Crooked Ranch. So it's just in the outskirts of Terrebonne.
0: So Titus is going to ask about the urban-rural divide in just a moment. And that's a major topic we want to talk about with you. But sort of as a case study first. So you were hired as the interim city manager of talent. You previously served as city manager of Phoenix, which Phoenix talent, close communities. The communities were just devastated by wildfires. I mean, you can go on YouTube and see just rows and rows of houses destroyed. But you got hired to be the interim city manager for this small, I am assuming relatively rural community in Southern Oregon, right after you ran like a very progressive race for Congress, a very progressive race at the statewide level, running on like a very progressive platform. And I believe your selection was still unanimous by the city council down there. So I'm curious, what's that about? That was something that surprised me. I thought like once you kind of jumped in the partisan pool of politics, that you'd be sort of not a palatable choice to local, rural, mostly Republicans, I'm guessing at the local government level, but clearly that wasn't the primary factor on their minds. What do you make of being asked to be the interim city manager?
1: Well, it's largely due to my experience. And first of all, talent lost about a third of our homes and a third of our businesses. The city was really devastated. So about 700 homes were burnt and about 60 businesses. And my background is in engineering, which is part of it. It's in planning. I've got a master's in planning, actually worked as a city planner for many years and still am a member of AICP. I'm also an attorney with focus on land use, Indian law as well. And so I've got that background. And then I've worked in government. I've actually been a city staff. I've been city management and I've also served on a council for eight years. And so I have those different experiences that I'm bringing to the role. And this is really about getting things done. Whether you're talking about the need for talent to rebuild and bring people home, which is a huge focus for our mayor and council. That's really the focus when you talk about that or politics in rural areas. People just want things done and things done well and as quickly as possible and to work together. So in terms of the politics, I'll just add that that talent is on the more progressive side, Phoenix on the more conservative side. The two towns are right in between Ashland and Medford, which are also known as kind of very different, yeah, political spectrum. So that's the politics side of it.
0: Did your personal politics come up at all? Like, did they say, you know, please don't bring up the social issues? Or was it kind of just like, we know your work in Phoenix, and we need you right now, and let's just do it.
1: We need to bring people home. We need to get people back in their houses. I was actually just earlier today, it's the weekend we're talking, but I was out looking at a potential FEMA site and then jumped on the phone with two FEMA folks to see. I was out talking to the neighbors and she had me out looking at the the property lines. And then I talked to the two FEMA folks. We're trying to get temporary emergency housing for folks who are still displaced.
2: So Jamie, I'm curious because I think Obviously, everyone in Oregon knows about the wildfire, because it, it doesn't matter if you were living on the border of Idaho, or if you were living, you know, on, on the sea, basically, you felt the wildfire through either experiencing it yourself, or of course, all the smoke in the air. How is the rebuild going, not just in talent, but a lot of these rural communities just kind of across the board? Because, I mean, the fire was was relatively recent in terms of it being late into last year, but I mean, it's it's been a long time since then. How is the general rebuild of these sort of communities going? It always goes slower than
1: you want it to. And, you know, it strikes everyone. And this type of tragedy really demands of all of us to step up and help our neighbors and get the job done. And so it really cuts through that political divide. It's, I think, frustrating to everyone when people try to bring politics into it, because it really comes down to helping your neighbors, helping your friends. Talent is also near and dear to my heart because I finished high school just down the road in Ashland, and my family used to live just across I-5 from talent. And I used to actually bike through one of my favorite jobs ever was during a break from college. And I would bike through talent up the hill to a a horse farm where I would feed horses and and shovel (laughs) horses. And that made me (laughs) where I began my interest in politics, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, You mentioned that like people don't want the recovery to be political. I think where the politics starts to creep in potentially is what people view as the solutions to the wildfire problem. So Alex's former boss, President Trump, famously talked about how we need to rake the forests and that's going to be part of the solution. And then on the left, people frame solving the wildfires issue as like, really, this is about climate change and we need to act to solve climate change. And that's where the sort of division creeps in. What's your take? What do we need to do to stop the wildfires? And is there a way to avoid this becoming a political nightmare?
1: Well, we've seen this in Oregon now for several years, a real struggle to move forward on climate issues and climate legislation, because I think Democrats jump to the buzzwords and talk about these big picture conceptual issues rather than, first of all, showing up in rural areas, having conversations with folks and talking about the issues that matter to people. So beyond wildfires, and we're probably going to see another wildfire season coming up because of our water. The water storage is really low right now. We're seeing lower levels down here in Southern Oregon, lower than it's been in several decades. And so that's a dangerous harbinger for things coming up. But also last year there was flooding in Umatilla County. We're also seeing drought. It's Jefferson County because there's especially the water rights for the farmers in Jefferson County. They're less senior than folks in Deschutes County. And so The way to be relevant and the way to have this conversation is to talk about wildfire and drought and flooding, the things that impact people's lives. And then start from there. Realize also that we need to let go of the buzzwords and the politics when we want to have real conversations and start to dig a little bit deeper. You know, some of these issues will involve both short and long term solutions, but it's going to take sustainable use of our natural resources, it's going to take recognizing the science that our practices and past practices have had on our climate, and, and also working in partnership on those issues. But when we try to turn into bumper sticker politics and, and scream at each other over the political fence, that's when it's all going to break down.
0: I assume you're talking about like the Green New Deal and language like that in rural areas kind of just sets people off
1: well, right now, the term the Green New Deal has become a buzzword because it's a trigger. It's like if you add for all to anything, people <laughs> either respond very positively or very negatively. But you know, in my conversations with folks in the most conservative parts of our state, with folks who identify as hardcore conservatives, I've yet to hear someone say that they didn't want you know, health care for their family. They didn't want to be able to put a roof over their head. They didn't want to have jobs. So The Green New Deal and the opportunity to have jobs with which you can feed your family and put a roof over their head, no one's going to argue with that concept. That's where the conversation needs to go. And I really think we need to let go of some of the buzzwords and some of that political ease that helps to, it does help to fire everyone up around election time. But that's where it really exacerbates the division that we have. And and both sides are are guilty of it. I mean, Democrats, especially here in Oregon, are just as bad as Republicans. Speaking to you, Ben, as a Democrat, I would say I'd call out Democrats just as readily as I would Republicans in trying to foment that anti the other side as opposed to having kind of common sense conversations.
0: Well, I want to ask Alex about this, because so one of the issues is, you know, when Greg Walden is running against you for Congress, it's in his interest to use those buzzwords because he knows most of the people in that district. There's more registered Republicans than registered, de- registered Democrats in the district 10s conservative. So there's an incentive built in for Greg Walden to say, you know, Jamie McCloud Skinner is a Nancy Pelosi, Green New Deal, AOC Democrat. So Alex, what do you think about the incentives built into our political system when you've got these districts that are so weighted towards one side?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it it can go a little bit in both ways. One, I think that people say those things sometimes because they know that they easily resonate, right? It may be very hard for me to paint a full picture of another candidate. But as you said, if I can basically say this person will vote with Nancy Pelosi 99% of the time, my district is conservative, that's just going to resonate well. It's also just an easy message, right? I mean, I think that one of the things that especially made me mad about working in, in Washington, D.C., is people always are so intellectual when they think about basically what voters are looking for when they are, you know, voting for a political candidate is your average person doesn't really pay that much attention to politics. They, you know, have real lives and they have real jobs and they're not, you know, thinking about these things basically all the time. And they just want to basically be able to vote for a candidate who they think represents their values. So I think part of it is it it just makes it easier from a messaging perspective, but too, I mean, yeah, basically the way that we have districts in Oregon right now, folks are incentivized to be able to do that. I mean, it's the same thing as if a Republican was running in Portland, right? I mean, even when it yep. happened to Newt Bueller, when I had conversations with him, basically, he was always under the impression that he could say, oh, I'm pro-choice. But of course, they ran attack ads against him saying that he stood with President Trump's pro-life agenda, even though he you know, is completely pro-choice. So yeah, it definitely, it's a political incentive for both sides, but I don't think that'll be an easy one to overcome.
0: It is interesting. Like, so in the way that Democrats sort of talked about Newt Bueller, Newt Bueller was identical to... Greg Walden was identical to Donald Trump. It's like, Republicans are all this. And then on the other side, like Jamie McCloud Skinner, same thing as AOC, same thing as Kate Brown, same thing as Nancy Pelosi, like she's part of this category. And it seems like to your point, Alex, you know, people are not deeply engaged in the nuances of politics. So it's a lot easier to sort people based on those labels. So I wonder, like, I don't know, I think you know Jamie. You came closer than anybody to breaking those labels down in the second congressional district in 2018, and still it was still a big margin between you and in the, the congressman. But what did you learn there about how to make political labels less relevant to voters and more about the issues that are affecting their lives?
1: Well, first and foremost, throwing me in a category with AOC and Kate Brown and Nancy Pelosi, I can. I can go on and on about amazing things all of them have done. So I have great respect for all three of those women. Yeah. So please don't make it as an either or kind of comparison because there's, I think sometimes in the messaging or how things are framed, that's when we have some of the problems. But in terms of being concerned about people's lives and being concerned about low-income families and being concerned about the environment, these are incredible values that, again, I see amongst conservatives in rural areas. So I think that simplification is what's really hurting us. And you talk about the federal versus, and I know that one of the the, the kind of premises you guys operate on is, is a lot of our politics is really being driven more at, at the federal level. It's because of some of the money that goes into these drivers and kind of creating these narratives. It's true also here in Oregon at the state level with the politics kind of being flipped on, on us, but that still does such a disservice to, to rural areas. And so this past year uh, after the primary was over and I was no longer a candidate, I had a lot of rural Democrats reaching out to me. And, and so I I kind of got my team back together and we worked incredibly hard to help folks connect with and elevate their profile, but connect with some of their community in their region It's tough to do in a time of COVID. So we had a bit of platform we were helping people out with. But the big thing that comes across, and this is my hope for the future in politics, is getting it more local. And and so when you can drop people in one box or the other, and you can demonize people, and you can encourage people to step back from the realities of their community and fall into those kind of political buckets— that's what really hurts us politically in in election cycles. But if you can become relevant in your community, and so we're working with rural candidates now, emerging rural leaders, to really establish that track record in the community. When you can break through that and become known as the person first, other than just simply the party, that's gonna be the hope for the future. And so we're doing a lot of work with rural candidates now to to develop that that sense of personal identity beyond just simple party politics. Because again, here in Oregon, Democrats do the exact same thing where Democrats have the number statewide. And so around election time, it becomes this very hardcore either or and demonizing folks on the other side, which actually undermines rural Democrats. And so you don't have the opportunity for rural Democrats to step into more leadership roles because ironically, the political machine, the Democratic machine here in Oregon undermines the ability for that to happen.
2: And so, Jamie, that's actually a perfect transition and something I wanted to ask you about. So on this show, we've spent a lot of time exploring the urban-rural divide. And by now, I think our listeners have a basic understanding of what I mean when I say that. But one thing I think is really interesting about you is that you encompass sort of a growing divide really in the Democratic Party, which is that the Democratic Party is becoming more focused on very large cities and a lot of the rural vote and sort of the working class communities are shifting more towards towards the, the, the GOP, especially since the, the rise of Donald Trump. So I, I'm curious because when you launched your, your Secretary of State campaign, I just read this great profile on you in the Ben Bulletin, and I'm forgetting who the state representative who said this, but basically they were quoted on the record of you saying when you were speaking to this group in Portland, basically saying, I'm going to say some things that people in Portland don't want to hear. I'm curious, just to start off the conversation, what were those things that you said that you think that people in the Portland area didn't want to hear?
1: Uh, I don't remember the exact conversation that was happening, but it was probably something just about some of the, the, the things that have led to the divide. The other thing that I think is really critical for everyone to realize is often when there's a discussion right now of the urban versus rural, it sounds like some people are trying to cage that also into a discussion about race and diverse communities. And um, in my community in Jefferson County, so I serve as a chair of the the ESD, the Education Service District Board, and our largest, well, if you look at our uh, student population base, we're actually a third, a third, a third in terms of demographics. We're a third Native American with Warm Springs being there. We're a third Latinx and a third Caucasian. And so rural areas are incredibly diverse. And then also, you know, some of the assumptions that are made kind of on both sides both of the political fence but also the urban versus rural those there is both a divide and also in many ways there shouldn't be or there's not a divide and it really depends on what you're focusing on and what you're stirring up. So helping people see that is really important. And I, I actually am doing a bunch of a series of conversations right now about the urban rural divide. And the point I try to hit home on the most is that there's a cultural difference. And it, it transcends politics, but there's a cultural difference. And words sometimes have different meanings, but also understanding where people are coming from and what's relevant to people is really critically important. And so, you know, the example I give is if you went went to a travel to another country where English was not the predominant language, you would expect to need to someone to translate for you. Well, even if you're speaking English in rural and, and conservative Oregon and in urban progressive Oregon, there's, you still need to translate. And people, I think that's a key point. I think a lot of people don't get.
0: So that's really interesting. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about was racial justice in rural Oregon, and and the term Black Lives Matter, which I, I'm guessing you'd probably put in that category of buzzwords that really turns people off. You know, it's never really spoken this way, but one of the things that I think is believed by most folks in progressive circles in the Portland metro area is that there's more racist people in rural Oregon, and that's one of the reasons why terms like Black Lives Matter. It's just so polarizing there, whereas in Oregon or in, in Portland Metro, part of Oregon, you have to say Black Lives Matter or you have no chance of being elected. Whereas if a local city council or county commission candidate said it in many parts of the state, it would be, I would assume, a non-starter for many voters. Do you believe that any part of this is about like actual bias and prejudice as being more significantly represented in parts of the state? Or is it really just a language communication issue where people can't understand or, or, or see each other's point of view?
1: Well, we live in a very racist state. I mean, look at the painful history of Oregon. And, you know, I think that you got more Proud Boys in the Portland metro area than you sure. do in my county. So that I think, you know, don't shirk away and don't make assumptions. And also the you know, I consider my, my politics pretty progressive, but some of the things that get me most frustrated about progressives who kind of wave that flag and then perpetuate some of the worst things that are, that are happening and, and preventing and not supporting BIPOC candidates from moving forward. What was really funny about Black Lives Matter, so using the acronym BLM, my family and I were, were at a, a BLM event. Well, in Primeville, which is a, a really a challenging community in that regard. Also Crooker Branch, where we, we there were several events. But the first time I posted on it, and this is part of that urban rural divide, someone said bureau land management. management. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you say BLM in rural areas, the first thing that comes to mind to folks is bureau <laughs> land management. That's the relevant, that's the relevant, um, you know, that's the long-term understanding of BLM. But you know, there there definitely are issues and there are problems, and that's why. Helping to mentor and support and help to for all of us to help emerging rural leaders, folks like Karina Miller, who ran for state senate, an incredible, incredible future leader. When I first met her, I was like, okay, I, I walked precincts for when she was running um, in for a school board. I knocked on doors and for. Her. It, it's we've got amazing folks who are emerging leaders in our state. And it's critically important that we support the development of ideas, and not just this really fractured either or. And I think it's especially important for more progressive-minded folks in rural areas because, well, and let's take progressive as a buzzword. Let me step back from that. Let me say community-focused folks because it doesn't really matter what letters after your name. We need folks in rural communities who can bring these ideas to the table and help to both if they're Democrats, help the Democratic Party better understand rural areas, and if they're Republicans, help to help the Republican Party better understand that it doesn't have to be about demonizing each other. It's about really addressing the needs. It all comes down to being relevant.
0: You alluded to this in one of your earlier answers about the sort of like institution of the Democratic Party and maybe the the mechanisms or other institutions allied with the Democratic Party, and we we saw this in the Secretary of State's race how you know. It was, it was still, it's curious to me. And so I I was a lobbyist at the time and some of my colleagues in the lobby, when then state representative Jennifer Williamson jumps out, there was this assumption among some of us, clearly we weren't the most well-informed that some of those big key institutions in democratic primaries were going to sort of gravitate towards you with the perception that, you know, Senator Haas at the time um, was maybe a more moderate figure and had, you know, made the PERS vote on cutting PERS. And then, of course, Senator, then Senator Shamia Fagan, now Secretary of State, jumps in the race and almost at the snap of a finger, the institutions sort of um, circle the wagons and go to support her. What do you make of that? And is there a place for rural candidates to run statewide in Oregon? Or is it just like you're not, you know, Karina Miller is a great example. What What is there for her to be an elected leader in Oregon with the partisan breakdown looking the way it does?
1: Yeah, I, it was a real disappointing eye-opener for me to see some of that machinery. And, and, you know, I think it was based on a couple things. One, I, you know, redistricting is the thing that's coming up. People are talking about, I was asked about it and I talked about a process I would put in place that would bring together folks from around the state. And uh, I think I'm, you know, in a purely political sense, I think someone who said, you want to be secretary of state, just say, how do you want me to draw the boundaries? And that would have gotten me the support. I think the machinery that's there, one is not focused on long-term growth of this type of leadership. The other thing is I think there's a real um, people who bridge the divide become very dangerous and very dangerous for folks who are trying to foment some of the the disconnect. And a lot of the organizations, organizations I've supported for years who really went after me, I I was shocked by, but realized that a lot of their funding base is based on demonizing rural folks. And so folks like me mm-hmm. really get in the way of that narrative. And then also, you know, Shami had reached out, we had conversed. She said, if it comes down to just you and Mark, I'll support you. I'm not running. And then went, you know, radio silent. And then I said, know she jumped at the race and a lot of mm-hmm. this stuff has happened. So, but it wasn't just me. It was a lot of, like I said, we were working with a lot of legislative rural Dems across the state. And especially the BIPOC folks, or the candidates, were so frustrated at getting a pat on the head and then being dismissed by the, the political machinery. And, you know, I do get the, the concept that focus resources on, look at the numbers and, you know, run those numbers and focus on the future, or I mean, sorry, focus on just the race ahead of you. But to do real long-term investment, you've got to be thinking several cycles down, down the line and really work at developing candidates. And Alex, actually, you mentioned this earlier about at the federal level. You're looking, and yet people are busy, but you know, one of the things I've always found really frustrating is this assumption that voters are stupid. And I really do think it's that level of dismissiveness. And again, I think both parties do it. It just try to, to spoon feed some of this, the vitriol about the other side and to simplify and demonize folks. If someone's got a good idea, go with a good idea. And I know it sounds simplistic and it's still not in the majority right now, but I think there's going to be enough people who want relevance in politics. They're tired of the BS. And I think when that's, that movement starts to grow, then I think you'll see a displacement of some of this the, you know, I, I think it, it really will help to to shift some of the local races, and then the folks who kind of move up through the political food chain.
2: So, uh, Jamie, I actually want to play devil's advocate here and put on my my Multnomah County Democratic Party leader hat. If not I'm a Democrat, ha- I think. Not a hat
0: not, that Not a hat that he wears often. I will point. Not, out. <laughs> not a
2: hat that I, I I don't know if I've worn ever, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm curious of what your response is to this of me saying. Jamie, that sounds great. We love what you're doing. We love that you're countering, you know, Greg Walden, Cliff Bentz, all these people out there that you're helping to get the message. But why would we change what we're doing? We're continuously winning elections. The Oregon GOP has basically no infrastructure. They don't raise any money. All of the big donors basically in the state are progressive and they give the money to us. We have all the institutions and we control Everything, basically, except for a congressional district too, uh, which I, I, I think that one will probably be impossible to control, at least for the foreseeable future, unless they do a dramatic redistricting, which makes it more moderate or something like that. But I, I'm, I'm curious of, that would be my pushback if I was a Democrat in Portland is saying, well, we're winning stuff. It's great what you're doing in rural areas, but you know we have our own progressive values, which I think in some circumstances don't line up with what probably folks who are a little bit more moderate Democrats in the rural districts are running. I would just be curious, what's your response to that? Because I know another thing that was in that article is that you said, basically, you wanted to help move the process a little bit more towards a more diverse group of people rather than just, I think that you said a few people in Portland who really control the strings on some of this stuff. So I'd, I'd be curious of your response to that.
1: Yeah, well, in having some of those conversations with uh, Multnomah County Dems, well, even Multnomah County, actually, if you look at East County, and and there's some even diversity in, in growth and power dynamics there. But yeah, some folks in Multnomah County recognize this larger picture. But others who are part of the machinery, I mean, I was told this after after the primary, because I thought last year, because I thought, well, at least we've started some movement that will get some, you'll be seen as value added. And I was told by a very prominent Democrat that essentially, that's really nice. It was the nice little pat on the head, but that the numbers aren't needed. And so it's not really relevant to democratic politics. I mean, you're, you're spot on. That's actually was part of the conversation. And I was um, disappointed, not totally surprised. I, I guess the what I'm seeing happening right now across the state is I think Oregon is where Wisconsin was in 2015. So in 2015, you know, no question, Wisconsin's a blue state, Hillary, you know, don't, don't even have to show up. It's a given. And uh, we're good to go focus on those other, I don't know, Pennsylvania or go to those other states. And even looking back a couple cycles, we saw this, I mean, Tammy Baldwin was, I think, the only Democrat for a while, but there was a, a Republican swing in, in terms of power in Wisconsin. But this, the assumptions about the statewide politics were that it was a it was a definite slam dunk blue. And then we saw Wisconsin was one of the swing states that gave the race to the Electoral College to the, the, our previous president, uh, President Trump.
2: Yeah, and, and still still razor close in 2020. Uber well. close. Yeah.
1: Yep. yep. And so I think, and we saw this, we're seeing this in Oregon with the legislative races. There are a couple races that Dems lost. I mean, the, in Deschutes County, a perfect example, where the county, I, I won the county in, in 2018, uh, a, a Dem congressional candidate, had won it in almost 50 years. Phil Chang won the county commissioner race. So he focused on natural resource issues. Uh, great. He's he's also a BIPOC candidate, but he won. And Tim Knope, uh, Eileen Kiley was not able to, to beat Kim, Tim Knope in an area where a Dem who was connecting with folks would have been able to win that seat. Now, one of the challenges she had was that All those races that were targeted were being run messaging and all signed, sealed, and delivered by WinPAC, and it was all coming out of the metro area. And so, you know, it put Eileen, and you have to talk to her for the specifics, but it put her in the awkward position of either going with, with kind of the package deal or connecting with, resonating with their voters. And so those purple areas like Deschutes County, I think are gonna to start to see the change. The, the coast, we're also seeing that, um, that transition happening. And the reason, and so Timber Unity has been, of course, has gained, uh, they were the big winners last year. And uh, there's, a, there's two pieces to Timber Unity. There's the politics piece and the messaging, and that's very artful politics, but there's also the people who are involved who are looking for that local relevance. Timber Union is very active during the fires and making sure people got their critters out, their livestock out. That's the kind of relevance folks in rural areas are looking for. And so Democrats were stepping up, uh, you know, big rural broadband is a big one. If you're the -hmm. the candidate who's focused on rural broadband, that's a breakthrough area where you're going to be able to win over across party lines. If you're relevant, that's where... Folks, you know, there's focus right now with rural Democrats, but frankly, anyone who's going to push relevancy, they're going to, that's, those are going to be the winners going forward. And that's, that's that shift between national or even statewide politics versus local politics, where I think once more that work is done and post COVID, we're able to go out face to face because that really helped me in 2018, showing up in places that people didn't expect to see a Democrat and having conversation with people and showing people that respect to showing up, that's, that's going to start to, to win hearts and minds again.
0: So quick follow-up, and then I want to ask about what you think the Democratic Party should do about it. But you mentioned that Timber Unity was the big winner. Do you attribute the the coastal flip seats from blue to red and Canope winning re-election to Timber Unity's influence in those races? Is that what you were alluding to?
1: Yeah, I think they did definitely along the coast. Uh, and, And so whether it's someone who identifies strongly with Timber Unity or is looking for someone who's relevant to the district. I think in places like Deschutes County, that relevancy is gonna, is gonna win the day. You gotta get out and, and get your message out, but that's where there will be pushback from kind of the st- standard political machinery messages.
0: Got it. Okay, so given the analysis you just provided about Oregon and the critiques made of the Democratic Party and the sort of machinery of power, let's say you were in charge, let's say you were chair of the Democratic Party. What should they be doing that they're not doing, and how can they go about shifting a system where the money and power and elected officials are all tilted in this one part of the state? What would you do?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that it's not the Democratic Party that's driving it. It's really some of that political machinery. So the folks who are mostly driving the messaging in the Democratic Party are not party members, are not party uh, DPO members. Um, They help some of the organizational stuff, but it's really some of the folks behind the scenes, some of the major consultants, uh, some of the the major donors, and they have the beauty of not having to deal with the the, the democratic politics of getting elected and, and going through committees and caucuses and all that other stuff. They can just, you know, tilt windmills with some of their, so That's major organizations who are in power. So that's really what's driving the state. It's not so much the DPO per se. But that said what the i think the dpo should do and you know either party can can take this idea is look not just one cycle down the road i mean we shouldn't it seems the democrats seem to be surprised every other september surprised that there's an election in november it should really be about uh, developing leadership throughout the state not being terrified at the thought of someone having a different letter after the name but really being focused on the values and the issues they are trying to promote and and trying to develop that leadership uh, across the state, especially in rural areas, but in urban areas as well, and that long-term view is what is, I think, going to start winning elections. You know, one, two, three cycles out.
0: Interested in in your thoughts, Alex, as a you know Republican. Republicans are almost Republicans are grappling with the same sort of issues that Jamie is talking about because their base are the folks that Jamie is kind of advocating for here, and similarly, they're also losing in Oregon, right? They're not um, able to make much of an impact. So, do you, when you when you're hearing Jamie describe a potential pathway forward for? Um, the Democrats sort of insulate themselves or make the party more representative. Are there lessons for the GOP in Oregon to adopt? And is it even possible given the leadership shift that we just
2: saw? Yeah, I think it's I think it's 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 two approaches. And actually um on the second thing I want to talk about, I want I want to get your take on it too, Jamie. The first is I think that Republicans, despite if they think these are, you know, if this falls in with their philosophy or not, I think they need to do a, a leftward shift on economics when they're running in the Portland areas when they're running in the suburbs and and, and, and things like that. What does that mean uh, to you, leftward? Do you mean like populism? like? I, yeah, I mean closer to, to economic populism. I think that especially since so much of our base has really transitioned away from some of those uh, suburban communities and more towards a rural and working class party, I think it's ridiculous if the Oregon GOP is still saying these handouts for big corporations are okay. Or, you know, we should continue to cut the income tax down to zero for communities that are already doing pretty dang well. while basically giving no love and no support to, to the folks in working class and rural communities. I don't think those messages resonate with our base. And I think that, you know, that's the continued policies that have been put forward. So it's it's time to try something new. So that's if I was running in that area or I was advising someone that that's what I would basically tell them to do if they were running in Portland or they were running in these suburbs that are around Portland. Now, and I've, I've had this similar conversation with others, and I think President Trump did this excellently when he ran for office, but I know that even though our base really is a part of these rural communities, I actually think they should, they should double down on that, for example. So one of the reasons that President Trump was able to really excel and just get himself over the line in places like Pennsylvania and places like Wisconsin is because instead of getting 70% of the so-called rural vote, in some areas, he was getting 80. And in some he was getting 78 and in some he was getting 75 and those little chunks of votes basically that he was able to get that helped push him over the finish line in some of those races which were absolutely razor thin. So if I was advising sort of a statewide campaign, people always have the qualm of okay you got to get you know 30% or 35% in Multnomah County that's the only way to win but I think we should be taking a broader look at things and saying no I think you should actually be doubling down in some of these working class and rural communities as well and really trying to, to push the numbers up there. But Jamie, I'm, I'm actually curious of, of your thoughts on that as well, especially as you're trying to build out this sort of democratic rural coalition is that one thing I think that might really hold you back in terms of is some of the uh, social issues. So I'm pro-life. That's an issue that really gets me out of bed. I'm really pro-gun. I'm sure you've met a bunch of voters who, you know, those are their two issues, right? Or maybe they care about some other sort of social issue or cultural issue or, or, or something like that. You seem very progressive on, on these sorts of issues, but I think it's interesting that you've still been able to do rel- relatively well, especially with these rural communities. So I'm curious, do you think that I'm reading a little bit too into that, that some voters really only care about those issues, but they're more open-minded than that? Or do you just think that really you were able to do so well because you are able to show up? Because that's one thing that I think, as you said before, is really holding back the Democrats in terms of engaging with these communities, is that they just don't care enough to show up. But clearly you did that, so I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Hmm.
1: Well, I think with your um your statement about the different issues, I think you may be caught a little bit in that like DC pollster looking at just and, and and I it's not I I don't mean to sound disrespectful. I think that's where a lot of folks go on it, as opposed to looking more at some of the individual relationship pieces. So one of the things and you also mentioned letting go of some of the issues. I think the Republican Party especially younger Republicans have done a good job of just letting go of like uh, LGBT issues. It's like a non-issue for younger Republicans in many places. And it really actually surprised me in 2018 in some of the most conservative parts of our states running as an out lesbian. I thought that was going to be a deal breaker, but at the same time, I thought it was important to, you know, there obviously there are LGBTQ folks everywhere. And I think part of, for me, part of the decision was helped to create safe space by for others who needed it by by being present and being out about it. I was also stunned at having being in really conservative areas and having someone who identified as a rural conservative Republican come up to me and thank me for being out. And this happened more, more than once and said, you know, I really want to thank you for running us out because, you know, my son's gay and it, it's time, or this concept that things have really shifted. Even on on issues of choice, I think uh, my view on that, and and I support a woman's right to choose, but it's more based on almost a libertarian argument. It's like, why should the government be stepping in and, and telling people what to do? Um, I remember having a conversation with someone in, um, I think it was in Wasco County at the fair back in, I don't know, probably 2018 or 2017. And then this guy came up to me and I was at the Dem booth and he came up and, and was looking obviously for a verbal spar. And when I I would always try to find at least one thing in common that we could use as a starting point for a conversation, and when I couldn't find something, my favorite thing to ask people was, "What do you hate most about Democrats?" Because it was no- <laughs> for that. Was no that. And um, oh,
2: what, what was the most common answer on that?
1: It varied, but in his case, he said uh, because all Democrats love abortions, and I was kind of shocked by that. And I told him I didn't. And he identified himself as, as a Christian conservative Republican. And I said, you know, I, I'm really shocked by your saying that. I, um, I've never heard that before, and I don't know anyone who runs around celebrating the thought and 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 wants to promote or or push or or. Um, it's not a matter of celebrating it happening. It's more a matter of whether or not that that choice is available. So I said, well, so I'm
2: actually curious though, do, do you think that's true? Because I mean, I've, I've seen this in Portland before, and I saw this a bunch when I was at the university of Oregon is people would actually wear shirts that say like, I I'm celebrating my abortion or like, they're trying to basically normalize it a little bit more. And why I wanted to to stop you there is because I think it's fascinating, basically your specific response to that. You say, well, you know, I don't, you know, people don't want to be able to do this. Basically, this should be a last option to me that that sounds like right out of, the Bill Clinton playbook, basically, like really center left on, on the social issues. But I, as you said, I'm sort of curious because you know, I, I don't really get that from people in Portland, I feel like. I actually feel like they want to double down on those sorts of issues and continuously go further to the left on the cultural and social issues.
1: So I hear you trying to jump in and trying to frame that uh, when I was trying to tell a story, but I appreciate you trying to double down on the messaging around that. That's your experience, and I can't speak to your experience. I can only speak to mine. And in my experience, I haven't had... I haven't seen that and I haven't had that as, as the experience around me. It's not something that I've done in my life and it's not something that folks that who agree with me politically that I've seen do. So I'll, I'll give you your experience. I can talk about mine. And so I told him though that I believe that if um, if a woman is, is in the situation where she's contemplating that, that ultimately it's between her, her doctor and her God. And he paused a long time. And then he responded to me, maybe not her doctor but her and her god and so here was someone who identified that as a primary issue for them and he was able to we were able to to have a conversation and talk about our perspectives on that and for me that was a really powerful example of someone going beyond the bumper sticker politics if we had the bumper sticker politics there was no room to have a conversation on that issue, uh, but I could talk about my experience to him, and and he was able to hear that, which I thought was really really powerful. So I know for some folks that is a deal breaker issue, but also understanding. I mean, one of the other issues you brought up was on guns, and you know the the experience around guns is very different in urban rural areas. If you know, I've my dad hunt to put food on the table. You know, if you live in Jordan Valley where my wife's family comes hails from you know, pre-statehood and you're in Jordan Valley and you call the sheriff and they're in Vail, it can take two to three hours to get there. And they have to go through the quickest route is actually through uh, Idaho to get there. And so, you know, that understanding of folks needing for either personal safety or for hunting, it's a very different experience. That's part of that cultural difference, I think, between Republicans and
0: Democrats. I think an- another big piece of this too is the what what drives rural economies. So, Oregon is famously, a. We, we talked about timber unity. One of the reasons timber unity is, renov- is resonating so much is because Oregon has historically been a timber driven economy and that's shifted in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, we had Alex carlatos the congressional candidate against DeFazio on. And the message he used that he thought resonated really strongly was literally running on a message of, we need to start cutting down the trees again. We need to just bring back the timber industry. And that was the solution that resonated well with him. My pushback on that was like, because of automation and regulation, we are not ever going back to that. It's just not happening. So you're, you're, you're selling something that isn't possible. I'm curious where you fall. Do you think that the timber industry should be revived in some way or that we need to offer something else to these rural communities who've depended on this one source of income for so long? And if so, what is the answer? Because they've been waiting, you know, I like Alex's point is fair. And the, and the folks's point is fair. Like government made it impossible to do the thing and didn't replace the thing. And so here we are decades later with massive levels of poverty in a lot of rural parts of Oregon.
1: Well, I think your point's very well taken that the the industry has shifted. And so we're not going to go back to that industry provide, no matter how much you cut, being able to provide uh, the number of jobs and types of jobs that were that were there before. The other thing is, I my sense, my belief is that we've got some heritage areas, we've got some areas that are more harvestable product, but there's also other dynamics going on in terms of how we manage that harvestable area. Uh, I've got some good friends who are former Republicans but supported me very strongly back in 2018 in the Josephine County area. And their family has lived on for, for generations on harvesting their their acreage and harvesting timber from their acreage. But what they do is they've put, um, they've recognized a 50 year cycle, life cycle for their, uh, for trees to regrow. And they've taken the entire parcel and they divide it into 50 chunks of 50. Lots.
0: yeah. Just,
1: yeah, they just harvest as much as they can every year and they live off that. So that's a sustainability approach is I think the sweet spot on that conversation. But the bottom line that people are most struggling with is just trying to feed their families and put a roof over their heads. And um, what we really need, and I mentioned rural broadband before, we need to diversify the economies in rural communities. You can't, even if you had one booming economy one you know one sector that was really going well it's still wise to diversify just like your financial portfolio because if something happened and you lost that you would otherwise devastate your community so i think having you know sustainable harvesting of a, a section of that of our, our our timber harvest for for product makes sense but also our rural areas uh wow, and in the area where he ran the, the level of poverty in some of those communities it will rip your heart out so showing up, understanding that, and then being an advocate for people to make sure that they have a means of feeding their families. So if they can't do it all through timber, and I don't think that's an option anymore, not just because of regulation, but to your point, it does. there's not enough jobs. Um, find other sources of jobs and other ways to sustain communities. That's really that's that relevance piece I keep talking about. And so I think for folks, they're not going to care if it's a Republican or a Democrat. If someone can be relevant and help folks feed their families, help their kids get access to educational opportunities or, or employment opportunities, have the families have access to health care, call it whatever you want. Um, that that's what people are looking for.
0: Well said last question for me, and then I'll, I'll let Alex round us out. Um, so you're an interim city manager right now, which means there is an end date to that job. And that'll probably be your first real chance to to rest since um, the campaign, I'm guessing. Have you thought about what comes next professionally for you? And is there a place in electoral politics that you can see yourself re-entering the arena? Um, or do you want to continue building this organization and building a pipeline of candidates and focus behind the scenes? What do you think your future looks like over the next five years?
1: I've got a lot of people sending me emails and calls and talking about that right now. And what I just keep saying to folks is uh, between now and the end of June, I'm just 100% focused on helping to rebuild the city of talent and help to move past the fire damage, getting people in houses, help to rebuild the local economy here. That's really my focus. And you know, nothing's off the table. I've served in elected office before. Well, I'm technically on the ESD board. So I'm also in a role now, but I've, I enjoy policy. I enjoy building community. So, you know, never say never, but I'm just, I'm postponing that, uh, that conversation until uh, at least the second week of July, because I think the first week of July, I'm going to sleep straight through.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds fair. Great. Well, well, Jamie, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us today. Uh, before we sign off, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they read more about your work? Where can they hear more about what you're doing?
1: Thanks for that. And thanks you guys so much for this conversation. And thanks for the work you're doing. Cause this is really important work. I uh, have kept my my old email at jamie at uh, oregoncom We've actually, after the election, we transitioned from Jamie for Oregon to Team Jamie for Oregon. I was trying to make it much more of a generic name uh, to talk about to be an organization to help build and develop future leaders. And then a lot of folks said they needed to go with um, the brand that we had built. And so we made it Team Jamie for Oregon. So we've got a website, Team Jamie for Oregon, or you can Google it. And we're right now doing mentorship. There's a rural network. where we're help helping folks come together and develop that capacity locally. And again, it's about relevancy. It's not just about politics. And also I've been doing a bunch of talks on bridging the divide, that kind of thing. So I do that in my spare time. But p- folks can go there for more information.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, again for tuning into another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Uh, make sure to give us five stars and hit that subscribe button. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks, you guys.